Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics still have a lot to offer the modern world. My name's Stephanie Lloyd and I'm the Deputy Director of Progress. And this week on the Progressive Britain podcast, we're taking a break from the chaos of Westminster politics to talk to a pioneer of the gay rights movement, Angela Eagle MP. As LGBT History Month comes to an end, we'll be reflecting on the advances of LGBT rights that have taken place over the last few decades, hear stories on how it all actually happened and how it was only with the Labour government that any of this was even possible. Uh, I'm also joined by my colleague Katie Curtis, who's becoming a regular on the podcast now. Um, by public demand. A, by public demand, yeah. Um, and obviously Katie works for us, but is also on the executive of LGBT Labour. So, Angela, we'll start with you. Obviously, you're a pioneer in so many ways. You were the first woman MP to voluntarily come out as a lesbian in September 1997. Um, and you did so with an interview with Suzanne Moore in The Independent. Yeah. But... What was it that led you to make that decision? Well, I wanted to move in with my girlfriend. We'd been together for quite a while anyway, but it was practical issues like that. And mm. we I was then a minister and it just seemed the right time, the, the right progression to sort of be more upfront about it. I hadn't ever tried to hide it, mm. but I hadn't made a positive statement about it either. Yeah. So it just seemed a sensible thing to do. And what was the reaction like when you were going through that? Because obviously it's, it's quite a personal thing to come out. And obviously we do it through various times in all of our life. So what was the response? Well, I, I didn't know what the response was going to be before I did it. But I did decide that if it meant the end of my political career, that that would just have to be what it meant. Hmm. There'd only been one other woman who'd ever come out, mm. and that was Maureen Colquhoun in the 1970s. She was outed by Nigel Dempster, that very nasty gossip columnist mm. at the Daily Mail, and she was then deselected by her own party, reinstated by the NEC, and then lost the seat. So that wasn't exactly... It wasn't uh, a great... Uh, it was a great track record that was coming <laughs> Well, it before. wasn't a great example, although she was always very brave. Mm. Uh, but I just thought that... It was something that seemed natural to me to do at the time. So what I did, I thought, what, I, I was a minister at the Department of Environment, Transport and the Regions at the time. And my um, my boss at that department was John Prescott. Mm. So I thought, well, I can't just do it. I'm going to have to let them know that I'm going to do it before I do it. Because yeah. when you're a coherent government, you, you sort of... 
you cover those bases. So I thought, well, first I'll, I'll ask Chris Smith what he thinks about how I should do it. And he was a cabinet minister at the time and I was a junior minister. Mm. And it took me ages to get a sort of dinner date with Chris Smith, given our day jobs, to try to have a discussion with him. We're old friends anyway. So we met up finally and it got all the way to the dessert before I sort of raised it because it just seemed such a a false thing to sort of introduce into the conversation. Anyway, I thought, well, I can't have waited all this time to get to talk to Chris and then not raise it. Mm. But it's a slightly awkward thing to raise. Um, And uh, so I raised it and he was absolutely gobsmacked, but quite delighted as well. I mean, and he gave me some good advice. I then um, decided I wanted to tell uh, my boss, John, Mm. Prescott. And again, you know, when you're trying to get the Secretary of State to go and visit the Secretary of State and his private office again, what's it about? And it's like, well, I just want to talk to him. <laughs> so that took ages. And yeah, anyway, you don't really want the subject line being like, I'm about to come out. <laughs> exactly. What do you put in the diary? <laughs> so I finally managed to get 10 minutes with him and I told him and he went, tell me something I didn't know already, love. <laughs> And um, so, and he was very, very good about it. Yeah. He suggested I then go and see Peter Mandelson, mm. who was um, at the cabinet office at the time, sort of Tony's um, right-hand Svengali person. And I, so I went to see him and he was also gobsmacked. And then I realised that all the gay men were absolutely gobsmacked and all the heterosexual men were, yeah, yeah, we know. <laughs> <laughs> because obviously they don't, they don't get the signals they normally get from... Heterosexual women, so that was quite funny. But anyway, then I I sort of, uh, I I did the interview with Suzanne. Andy Marr was the um, editor of The Independent at the time, and I just felt that would be a better place to do it than The Guardian, which Mm. I thought was a bit full of public schoolboy sort of types. Yeah. Whereas The Independent seemed more mm. down to earth and and it worked very well. I was up in the constituency. I got a fantastic response from my constituents. And in fact, uh, the local media visited that day and had been doing vox pops all around Wallasey and they couldn't find anyone who had a bad word to say about me. So that's when it was quite emotional. That's good news. So, I mean, not sure it'd be true now, but <laughs> Casey, I mean, what was it? What was it like? So obviously, you know, you came out and you've been involved in politics, and those kind of two things really kind of overlapped for you in lots of senses. So, I mean, what was it like? I'm going to kind of embarrass Angela, but you know, what is it like having people like Angela in the movement? What's the significance of that of people who were brave enough to come out and led the way in that sense? Well, I, I think it's very clear that um, you look up to these people. So, as a young member in the Labour Party. Uh, in 97 when I was 18 and I, that's the first time I heavily got involved after being a member for a couple of years. Um, but at that point still not have told a, a dicky bird that this is how I was feeling about things. Um, so being able to see that in somebody that you stood, you looked up to was, was really great. And I think one of the things that um, we talk about is for the next generation, making it better for the next generation. And certainly that's what people like Angela did uh, was to ensure that the next generation of uh, of Labour activists didn't have to think twice about it, could just 
come out and um don't get me wrong there's still times whereby I feel even within the party it's it's been difficult uh but to have somebody so visible there um and certainly because up to that point we'd had a few gay men and so it was like well that was that was fine but actually it's still and and sometimes it's difficult to explain this to people that it's fine seeing gay men out, but there is something deeply personal when you are a lesbian to see an out lesbian. Well, so we've got the, the lesbian limelight. takeover of the podcast today. So, <laughs> I mean, Angela, what was it the like? The end of the universe as we know it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, what was it like being an out MP in the kind of like 90s? Like, has it changed much in terms of people's attitudes? Is it is it something that people even really talk about anymore? Was it, you know, wh- what's the difference now in terms of, of that kind of change? Well, we're the gayest parliament in the world now, apparently. Um, More out members of parliament uh, than in any other legislature in the world. So um, that's pretty rapid change. I mean, I was the only out lesbian for 10 years. Mm. And I have to say, I think that when the Labour government was elected in 97, I think attitudes in the country had changed much faster than attitudes in the then Conservative government. They'd got themselves very, very hooked on this repressive approach which Mrs Thatcher had inaugurated with people like Dame Jill Knight and used as a kind of cultural wedge Mm. and dog whistle. I mean, I remember canvassing in Battersea, which we lost in 87, uh, and just being told that Labour was just for the blacks and the queers. You know, so it was used as a cultural battering ram to differentiate and then we had Section 28, which was the piece of legislation that was used to do that. Yeah. Um, so, and, and this was then sort of enthusiastically supported and borne aloft by the red-top tabloids. So prior to my coming out, you know, the, the Labour government had been accused of being in hock to a gay mafia when it wasn't the Tafia, which of course is the Welsh mm. um, leadership when Neil was leader it was the gay mafia so they were they always used uh, that kind of thing to try and other you as a politician and make you less than human and I think that stepping um, around that was really important and so where we are now um, maybe there are people in the tabloids that would love to still behave in that way, but they daren't. Yes. Because time has moved on. Where you get it now, obviously, is in social media and in the wilder, wild west areas of conspiracy theories and all of that. So we've we've kind of developed another horrible place mm. um, where uh, hate and nastiness can bleed over into real life. But thank goodness it's not the tabloids... But also, as I said, I mean, you know, as you say, kind of in social media, but that's such an unregulated space now. Yes. So at least with the tabloids, there was there is something about the fact that is in print, it is across the country, it's for all to see and who's written it. But obviously now yes. with social media, that that is certainly not the case. But it is astonishing how when people read something in black and white, they believe it, even if it's the world is run by lizards. Yeah. I think the anonymity of some of the comments you get on social media is, is what causes a a lot of the problems because like yeah, there's, there's a no disinhibition recourse. yeah there's no recourse for you can say whatever you like to whoever you like well yeah. that's what they think i mean it's not actually true but in practical terms it probably is do you think you would have come out if if it'd still been a tory government in 97 
Do you think that? Do you think that that made you think the country had changed a little bit? The fact that this party that was seen as for just for the blacks and the queers had now taken over government with such a huge majority. Um, well, well, obviously something had changed. We had a huge uh, Labour landslide, but I think also that I'd perceived that there was a change in public attitude that was uh, on these issues that was far ahead of where the previous Tory government was because it was an ageing government. It was 18 years. It was running out of ideas. It was getting less and less uh, in touch with what more modern people thought. Uh, and so... I think that I detected the shift in public opinion uh, and I think I probably would have done it anyway because I would have still wanted to move in with my girlfriend. <laughs> so there were so many, we kind of touched on obviously the last Labour government and there were so many milestones during that last Labour government when it comes to advances in LGBT yeah, It's a huge rights. list, isn't it? There is. So there's the ones that everybody remembers. So the repeal of Section 28, as you said, the legislation that banned... Uh, any kind of discussion or, or mention of homosexuality is being acceptable in schools. There was the introduction of civil partnerships. There was then obviously the Equality Act at the end of that government. But there were also so many achievements that people don't know of. So the Unmarried Partners Concession, which committed the UK to ending discrimination against lesbian and gay couples before civil partnerships, the lifting of the ban on lesbian, gay men, and bisexual people serving in the military, equalising the age of consent, introducing employment equality laws, Gender Recognition Act, the Adoption and Children's Act, which allowed same-sex couples to apply for joint adoption, the creation of the Equality and Human Rights Commission, legislating for fertility rights for lesbian and bi women. I mean, I could literally name so many more. And if you are interested, there is a wonderful thread that LGBT Labour is currently doing on Twitter every day where it does those. But what of those achievements kind of do you think had the greatest impact or was, was the most difficult to get through in that sense? Well, I think the um, the the taking the discrimination out of sexual offences legislation mm. was probably the most difficult, uh, as was repealing Section 28, mm. partially because the House of Lords still had a lot of dinosaurs in it yeah. who who used to like talking about bestiality a lot mm. and had an obsession with male genitalia, which you can see if mm. you go and read those debates, fairly astonishing. Um, they're not like that now, but they were they were then. And so that was quite an emotive, difficult issue. So equalising the age of consent took us, we had to use the Parliament Act, it never passed through the House of Lords. Mm. Um, it took us three attempts. It took us three attempts to get rid of Section 28. Mm. We nearly lost two local government bills because they just wouldn't pass them if it had Section 28 repeal in it. So I think those were the, the absolute heart of the battles, this ridiculous view that somehow the homosexual lifestyle is stalking around schools trying to make converts when actually what was happening was a load of unhappy people were being bullied and some were taking their own lives mm. um and you know the idea that we shouldn't have proper information um and proper support for people as they're going through adolescence if their sexuality is different is just astonishingly cruel and difficult and I think probably the the, the third bit uh, that was the most difficult was was stopping the discrimination in goods and services provision yeah. on the grounds of sexual orientation, particularly around gay adoption. Yeah. Um, and there was a battle within the Labour Party about that, which um, we managed to win. So those are all, 
huge achievements that didn't come easily. I think the most positive thing was probably the Civil Partnerships Act. Yeah. Because what happened was that that was an official validation of love between people of the same sex. Uh, and a lot of the wider families and friends who went along to witness some of the first civil partnership ceremonies suddenly thought, oh, this is like when I got married. Oh, they love each other. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> and it just normalised what had always been problematised in yeah. the past. Now, I did, I did have... I did a, an interview for um, the film 50 Years Legal uh, and there were some gay men there that were going, oh, it's all boring now that we're, you know, we're legal and now we're meant to be as as, as uh, responsible and, and as, 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 as ordinary heterosexual people. Oh, so there is that view that it's all better and much more exciting when it's hidden, but I don't go along with that. I know, my mum's still very judgmental. She's like, you can get legally married now, so I'm not quite sure why you've not hurried up and done that. Um, well, I've still got a, part, a civil partnership with my partner. We're civilised, as we say. <laughs> Um, we're just going to take a short break there, but we'll be back with Angela shortly to talk through what it was really like campaigning in the kind of early years of government and what we think is going to be next in terms of the advancement for LGBT rights. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, Angela, it, it often feels when people look back now on these achievements that they're kind of taken for granted. Yes. Yeah, so are... it was all natural. It was just all a natural progression. That's yeah. what the Conservatives like people to believe. They do. And it's it's this idea that, as you say, it kind of always would have happened and that, you know, we were people weren't fighting for these rights on a daily basis. It was just an inevitability. I mean, what do you what do you think about that when you kind of hear people try and normalise all of those fights and struggles? Well, it makes me think we won. True. So that's the first thing to say. They now can't feel that they can argue that it shouldn't have happened. So they have to argue that somehow it was inevitable that it happened. Mm. And as I say, it's often conservative gay people who've benefited from the risks and the heavy lifting that the Labour government took who try to claim that somehow it was just all a natural progression. Mm. Well, it 
no social progress is a natural progression. Mm. You have to have progressive forces fighting for it and you have to have a progressive majority in Parliament mm. uh, or you don't get it. Mm. And it doesn't happen by magic and it doesn't happen usually by accident. It happens by deliberate planning and campaigning and bravery and persistence and people standing up and fighting for their civil rights. And those battles always cause a backlash and they always require a lot of very brave people. They require allies, um, people who aren't gay supporting gay people. They just require organisation and a progressive majority. So no, they don't happen by accident and they don't happen inevitably either. And they can go backwards. They can. You can lose them if you're not careful. I mean, Katie, what do you think of that? Obviously, we quite often... I mean, quite often, you know, we hear these days the Labour Party started in 2015. So, you know, what is what do you feel as kind of a, a kind of gay activist within within the Labour movement for so many years in terms of people's dismissive nature of where how brave that kind of current government of the time was to do some of those things? Yeah, I, I think that when people make it out that the 97 to 2010 government were evil or or didn't do anything good. I mean, we said this last week on the uh, podcast when we were talking about why we were Labour and why we were staying. Do you know, for me, the party that I was spending all my time with, giving all my time to, had then started doing things like validating my relationships, Uh, like Angela said. So civil partnerships for me was the biggest bit of legislation, I think, that 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 government brought in because it meant someone with two brothers, two heterosexual brothers, my love life was seen as valid as theirs was and if I'd ever wanted to find someone who'd want to be in a civil partnership with me I was able to and I think that was that was really interesting but what I, my concern is is not so much the normalization it's the complacency that sometimes is now creeping in is that we did all these great things uh, but there's not the awareness that actually some of that could be rolled back at any moment we could we could anyone we can see what these governments can do uh, and we can see what a Tory government can do if they have a majority and, and, and some of that stuff could quite easily be rolled back so so not only the normalisation it's this idea that actually those those wins are done and dusted and we can move on and now we've got all these rights we still see so much hate crime we see so many people still, still being beaten up in the streets for holding hands with boyfriends and, and things like that so it, I think that's the one thing as a Labour activist and the reason I'm still involved with LGBT labour is because the job is never done on this stuff i think we have to remember as well that it was the labour party that decriminalized homosexuality in the 60s Mm. um and in those great labour governments where we also did other anti-discrimination legislation for women and um, bame people Mm. um at the equal pay act the sex discrimination act the race relations act uh, you always and only get progression with labor governments now i know that david cameron made great play of passing equal marriage his own mps didn't even vote for half it. of over half of them so that only got on the statute book with labor votes yeah. even though they've tried to neutralize all of the brave work that was done mm. by the labor government by passing that so i think a, a proper look at history demonstrates that you you only make progress with the labor governments and you've got to be careful that there isn't backlash we're in a very backlash 
type of situation now after the Brexit vote. There was there's been a huge increase in hate crimes, uh, and it's also been perpetrated against LGBT people, and we have an issue with trans rights mm. and all of the vitriol and hatred that's going on with some of the mm. debates there as well. So we have a few things left to do, but basically we also have to make sure that those equal rights in law. Mm. Um, become a reality for every LGBT person in yeah. our country. We'll take a look at some of the things that we think we've still got left to do going forwards in a moment. But just looking back a little more for a second, in terms of obviously you say that, and rightly that those, you know, history is only made and pro like progress is only made when there are Labour governments. But what were the kind of internal debates like in the party at the time? Because, you know, from things that I've read and things that you see, it wasn't it wasn't always easy even to convince the Labour Party that this was the right thing to do. So what were some of those like, what were, what were the biggest kind of battles over some of those issues? Well, I think if you look at the film Pride, that encompasses one, that demonstrates that the trade union movement, and they have their own self-organised groups in the trade union movement, LGBT groups, who've uh, made an enormous contribution via the... Um, the, the uh, unions that are affiliated to the Labour Party to making our policy in this area, which oughtn't to go untalked about. Um, they deal with the issues at the workplace. They deal with the discrimination and, and, and what's going on at the coal face. Yeah. They bring it back into their um, own trade union uh, forums and their own trade union democracy, and it gets through into the Labour Party democracy that way. Now, Pride was a kind of a stylized but basically true um, account of how our policy in all these areas was was founded mm. um, at Labour Party conference in 1985, Bournemouth, I was there. Um, and so, um, yeah, that, that was... What was I it think, like? <laughs> what was it like? Uh, well, it was, it was an exciting Labour Party conference that yeah. year, you might remember. Um, well, you weren't, you probably weren't born, but sadly anyway, I wasn't. I'm um, sorry oh, for that. Dear me. <laughs> that just <laughs> demonstrates how old I am. But anyway, um, it's important that this connection with the workforce uh, and what's happening in our country continues to be made in the Labour Party. Mm. And then the things we have to do are to make sure that now we've made the law equal, that people's life chances are equal and that if there is discrimination then there's proper redress for those that have been affected in that way and there's still a lot to do in that area. We've seen over the last few years that kind of real rise in hate speech and, and lots of people kind of pin it down particularly to around the Brexit referendum and post that that really kind of unleashed that kind of tidal wave of anger and, and opinion that people thought they couldn't say anymore. Um, but we've seen this particularly at our elected politicians, both from outside the party, but also from times from within our own party. I mean, what are your thoughts on the kind of culture of the party at the moment and what it's like for you to be a kind of proud lesbian MP in the current climate? It is sometimes something that people throw at you. Mm. Uh, and I, I think that um, people who do that or think like that don't have any connection to the values that our party was founded on. And, uh, you know, they need to take a long look at themselves in the mirror and go and join another party, maybe put on a yellow vest and and go off to where they belong. Mm. Um, so, so there is that. But I think there's a bigger issue here of how social media is poisoning debate mm. and the, the kind of Facebook effect of algorithms, the, the 
business model which exacerbates extremism and division mm. um, and creates these bubbles of Facebook groups where everybody agrees with each other and then they become more and more radicalised and, and more and more outrageous. And this started in places like 4chan and offline and then it's bled into the way that our discourse, be it political or anything else, is actually then... Um, sort of uh, passed around and I think we are at the very beginning of the effects that this new channel of communication has created and at the moment it's a wild west and it's having very very bad effect on the way that we talk about things the way that we view each other um, and it's causing extremism and division and it needs to be dealt with. Because, I mean, you've had, a, you've had a brick through your constituency window. I mean, this is not something that is, you know, this is not a problem where it's also sometimes just online. There are well, also... Look, I, I think that we've had a Labour MP murdered in cold blood by yeah. the extreme right. We've had the rise of anger in politics spilling out into death threats against members of parliament. Um, we've seen young people committing suicide because they've been subjected to such vitriol online that their parents don't even know about. Mm. Uh, we've seen the way that some people are being radicalised online by outfits like ISIS. We need to realise that this, the, the presence of this new capacity to talk directly to people is causing huge anxiety and problems and it needs to be properly policed and it needs to be properly regulated. Mm. I think what calls, concerns me so much is that it's not just the old enemy. So I would have known before that I would be looking out for some of this hate speech from the far right and it's still happening and certainly a lot of Labour MPs, especially BME Labour MPs, are subject to uh, Diane Abbott. And, and a lot of women. A lot, lot of women, women get it more so. than men, but men get it as well and obviously mm. black people get yeah. it. Mm. But I think that's fine uh, and we're... We've never stopped, I don't think, thinking that we've got to be on guard to the far right for that. Um, my concern is is the um, now the, the other end of the extreme. And so even within our own ranks and within left politics, mm. that, that that hate has now reared its ugly head. Um, and, I, and that concerns me because I don't, like, how do you deal with that? Like, it's fine dealing that with a, with a group of people who are diametrically uh, different to you as those in the yellow vests, as, as Andrew discussed. But when it's with people on your own side, it's a little bit more difficult. I think also, though, that um, we are in uncharted territory in, in the way in which this anger is being used. We know that the business models of organisations like Facebook exacerbate division and... Um, put people in touch with those who think in similar ways and they then think that everybody thinks like that because they're in their own hermetically sealed place. Um, and I think that we're, we're now at a, quite a pivotal point for the survival of our democracy um, because we need a place where we can have objectivity and truth and facts or democracy doesn't survive. And unfortunately, a lot of these places don't recognise fact 
facts or truth. In fact, they promulgate what I think Trump would have called alternative facts. Um, and so we're at quite a difficult place. If you look at the way that this capacity to generate false stories has impacted uh, in the world, it looks like it caused some of the problems against the Rohingya in um, Burma. Uh, we know and that people state actors and a lot of it from abroad promulgated the idea that what had happened in Salisbury was fake. So we are at quite a difficult point and we need to get to a stage where we can regulate some of this and we can have a space where good people can go for facts and truth. Otherwise, democracy is very difficult to sustain. Could not agree more. So, I mean... Kind of bringing it back to some of the the issues of the LGBT community now. So obviously we've spoken quite a lot about the kind of achievements that we've had and where we've come from. But what do you think are the kind of next challenges facing the LGBT community going forwards? Well, I certainly think we've got to deal with the backlash mm -hmm. and we've got to concentrate on ensuring that the rights that people have in theory are actually there in practice. So that means... Um, a strengthening of enforcement capacity uh, at work, mm. uh, and easier methods of enforcement, when in fact because of austerity um, the current government might talk a good game but they've virtually destroyed the employment tribunal system and made it very diff difficult for people to access their rights. Mm. Um, equally also with um, civil rights in the courts because mm. of how they've destroyed a lot of the way that the courts work. And it's no good having a theoretical right if you can't make it... If it's not a reality. Yeah, mm. a reality. I mean, let's face it, the Soviet Union had the most democratic constitution that's ever been written in theory. It mm. just didn't work out that way in reality. So I'm a pragmatic politician. We need to make certain that those rights that we've put on the statute book, which we're very proud of putting on the statute book, actually become a reality for everyone in our country. And then we need to campaign, particularly across the globe, um, about those areas where, uh, those countries where it's illegal to be gay. Mm. And obviously in some countries, the penalty is death. Yeah. And that still exists. Katie, what do you think are the kind of next frontiers in terms of some of the campaigns for LGBT rights? I think two things for me is that uh, certainly trans rights. So uh, we know that it's something that we're working hard on in LGBT labour. Mm. Uh, but we know from, on again, online and even within the Labour Party in our local parties, uh, there is uh, such vitriol against um, trans people, um, and in particular trans women. And um, I, I know that my sisters on the LGBT Labour Committee are very committed to ensuring that trans women are see, can see that they have a place within our group uh, and with us uh, on the front line in fighting this. So I think we really, really... I certainly we've done podcasts with, with trans activists previous and I think um, making sure sort of our trans activists are more visible um is, is really important but then start making sure that they get selected for as councillors and selected as mps and that's the next thing that we need to do and i think certainly the challenge within the party but also more broadly is is ensuring that the lgbt um activist space is is wider than just a group of white people who have now got who've now got it a little bit easier uh, and we know from our own stuff that we do it's very very difficult as the disabled officer is getting more disabled people involved and certainly 
people of colour, we we need to ensure that uh, that they have a space within us and are far better represented and have, are equipped um, to deal with sort of the homophobia that they find in their communities. Well, thank you both very much. That was, you know, a really insightful discussion and, you know, fascinating to hear kind of everything that's happened uh, over the last couple of years and the real struggles that, that people have done. And for someone like me who's benefited from so much of those, I just want to say thank you. Um, so that was this week's Progressive Britain podcast. We'll be back later on uh, in the week. And if you're having all of the withdrawal symptoms from the discussions about Brexit, we'll be straight back into that. But in the meantime, as ever, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton who produced this podcast. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.